Good morning. It is so great to have all of you here today. Um, I'm going to begin with a weird topic because uh, last week I had a large amount of people ask me where my wife was last week. And since she's not here two weeks in a row, people I feel like are going to ask me again. But Emily sat further back last week, which threw everybody off apparently because a lot of people were asking me where she was. We had some visitors in town, and so they sat a little further back because sitting on the front row sometimes can be intimidating, I guess. But they sat a little further back, and then this morning she's serving in the nursery. So don't think anything crazy is going on. She's just she's serving in a different spot this morning. Y'all, we're in the middle of a series in Proverbs right now. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. And if you've been with us so far, you know that in Proverbs, what we see right now is a father talking to his son. A father trying to lead and guide and direct his son. And so far we've seen him talk about numerous topics. We've seen him talk about the fear of the Lord. We've seen him talk about the value of wisdom. We've seen him talk about how his son needs to heed and understand he needs the wisdom of God. We've seen him talk to his son about his need to trust in the Lord. And if you were here last week, he showed him how to, have, how to live a wise life by finding the path of the wisdom, by staying on the path of wisdom, and by not swerving from the path of wisdom. And now he moves to a different subject where he's going to have, uh, I guess the way you'd say it is he's going to have the talk with his son. And he began talking to him about sex, and specifically the devastating consequences of not having sex in God's will for your life. You know, one of the things that I love about preaching expositionally, which means preaching and saying what God has said in his word is what we need to pull out and give to people. But another way of talking about expositional preaching is best done as you preach through books of the Bible and let people see the storyline and the flow of the author. One of the things that I love about expositional preaching is it makes you preach passages that you wouldn't typically step up and say, you know what, today I'm going to talk about the consequences of sexual issues in your life. Let me talk about the, the consequences of sexual sin, to be more specific. You know, what I would tell you is there are few topics that I can think of in our day and age that need to be taught about from God's Word than this. What does God's Word have to say about sex? And even more specifically, what he wants to talk to his son about is what are the dangers of not utilizing sex God's way? What are the dangers of going rogue, if you will? So he wants to talk to his son about sex and sexual sin. Now I want to tell you, one of the things that he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, God has given you desires, fulfill them however you feel led to do so. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell his son, as long as you do this in a safe manner, you'll be good, because safe sex is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. He doesn't say, son, here are a few tips. Go have a good sex life. He doesn't say that. Rather, he says something very different. He says, sex has a greater power to ruin your life than any other aspect of your life. The greatest power to ruin your life and the lives of those who are around you. You don't hear that in blog posts today. Instead, he gives his son three short lectures, and he wants to tell, them that, tell him this. Sex is deadly if you don't know and follow God's design for it. Sex has the power to ruin your life unless you follow God's design for it. The title of the sermon this morning is simple, How to Ruin Your Life. How to Ruin Your Life. And we're going to look at Proverbs chapters 5 through 7. I know three chapters, that's a lot, especially for me. We're going to make our way through it. But you need to see the connection that he has through each of these different lectures as he's talking to his son about this important issue. And what I'm proposing to you this morning is you and I need to recognize if we are not wise to follow God's plan for sexuality, we will ruin our lives. That's not a suggestion. That's not a possibility. We will ruin 
our lives. And so Solomon simply says to his son, I want to tell you the truth about sexual sin. Parents, listen up. His dad, I want to tell you the truth about sexual sin. Let's pray and we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the promise that every time we open your word, we can have confidence that you are speaking. God, I thank you that your word is not just some safeguard that you only touch on certain topics. God, you talk about all that we need to know to live a life of godliness and purity. And Father, that definitely includes sex. Lord, help us realize that sex was your idea. It is your design. God, help us listen. Help us listen to hear what you have to say to us this morning. God, illuminate your word to us. Let us see it. God, convict us of your word this morning. Help us apply your word this morning. God, empower me, please, as always. Put your words in my mouth. Keep my words out of yours and bless your people this morning. We ask all this in your precious and holy son's name. Amen. Amen. So what you're going to see is through these three chapters, we're going to see four primary truths about sexual sin that Solomon wants to tell his son. And then we're going to come back on the backside of that and ask, okay, how can we live to not fall into that? How can we live wisely to not let that ruin our lives? And before we even begin, I want to define what is sexual sin. Sexual sin is any sexual act with someone who is not your spouse. Consensual, non-consensual, it doesn't matter. Sexual sin is a sexual act, any sexual act with someone who is not your spouse, It is seeking sexual fulfillment outside of marriage with your spouse as God has called one to. One man, one woman for life. Another way to say it is it's choosing to please ourselves sexually in a manner that God does not permit. We must understand God has a lot to say about this. Let's begin. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. Now I want to be clear. The reason that he's talking about a woman in all of this, the promiscuous woman throughout, is remember, he's talking to his son. And so you can say vice versa, the promiscuous man, the promiscuous woman, he's talking to his son. The first truth he wants to give him about sexual sin is this. First off, sexual sin is ultimately disappointing. Sexual sin is disappointing. In other words, it is not what you think it will be. Listen to how he says this. He says, son, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. Her words are smooth like oil, but she will pierce you like a sharp sword. In other words, what you think you're getting is not what you're actually getting. I mean, this is a silly way to think of it, but it would be like opening up a Snickers bar and taking a bite and it tasting like broccoli. He's saying the packaging, what it looks like, it's not going to give you what you think it's going to give you. In other words, sexual sin does not lead to satisfaction. It leads to more brokenness. It leads to ruin. Now I want to ask the question and answer, if that's true, and it absolutely is, then why do so many people fall into sexual sin? Why is sex the number one addiction in our world today? So much so you even have psychologists and other people starting 
websites like fightthenewdrug.org is one simple website about how this drug of sex is overtaking people. It's the number one sexual addiction. But if it leads to bitterness, if it leads to not satisfaction, then why would people run after it? Well, one, the availability is all over the place. I don't have to tell you that sex is everywhere. Messages about sex are everywhere. One in every five ads will have sexual content leading you to some either sensual thought or a sexual aspect. One in five ads do that. You turn on any show, you turn on anything online, you go to your phone, you don't even have to go looking for it. It is everywhere, is it not? Messages about sex are everywhere in our world. That's one of the reasons people continue to fall into it. Another reason is we're continually inundated with lies about it in our world. That sex is somehow safe in any capacity is a lie. That in order to have satisfying sex in your life, you need to practice and be with multiple people to learn how to be good at it. That maybe if you are struggling with sex, then you just need a different person. And you're inundated with these lies. Another lie is that few ever actually talk about the consequences of not following God's plan. How many of you have ever watched a TV show that, that shows promiscuous sex in a bad light? How many of you have ever watched a show that talks about adultery and shows you the devastating consequences on one's family later on? How many shows, how often does the world say, think down the road and look at what happens? No, they praise it at the beginning. They never talk about the end, what it leads to. Brokenness, dissatisfaction, ruin. Another reason that it's pervasive is there's just a lack of biblical teaching in it. Yo, know, the Bible has the Song of Solomon, which is a whole book dedicated specifically to why did God design sex and what does it look like to have good sex in your life? And for the most part, we tell young people, stay away from it. You don't need to read that. And we tell old people, it's too bashful to go to it. That's ludicrous. Why would we not go and see what does God have to say about this? And I'd love to talk to you more about that aspect, but this morning, the whole point is the dangers of sexual sin, which is where he goes to next. Flip over to Proverbs chapter 6, and I want to show you the flow of thought he has throughout. Proverbs chapter 6, I want you to look at verses 25 through 28. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25 through 28. Notice what he says next. He says, do not desire her. He just talked about her, the forbidden woman, the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Here he gives him the second truth. The first truth is this. Sexual sin is disappointing. It's not going to give you what you think it is. And the second point is sexual sin is deceptive. Don't be fooled. I've heard it said this way. Proverbs is him talking about two boys, stupid boy and wise boy. He's saying the stupid boy, the foolish boy, thinks that he can play with sexual sin. The foolish boy doesn't understand what sexual sin really is all about. Notice in verse 26, he says, do not, or verse 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not desire her beauty. Then he says, watch where you look. Do not look at her. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. In other words, be careful where you look. Friends, do you know that your eyes are the window to your soul? What you watch will get in you, and what gets in you will come out of you. It will happen. He's saying, watch what you look at. Watch looking at her. But notice he talks about desire. Y'all, we need to understand this. We talked about it last week. 
Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, right? You will not ruin your life by saying, you know what, I'm going to go commit some heinous sin. You will ruin your life by not guarding your heart, by not guarding your own desires. And this is what he's trying to tell his son. He says, look, living this way does not begin by going out and doing something crazy. Living this way starts by not guarding your own desires. Look at what James 1, 14 and 15 have to say. It says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, he's saying desire starts small but it only grows if you feed it. Friends, you can look every single year at some point, there will be a trainer of an exotic animal who has died by the hands of his exotic animal. You see over and over again, somebody in a zoo who raises up a lion cub and raises him up and nurtures him and takes care of him. But whenever the lion gets older, the lion eats them or kills them. And people seem to be so shocked by that. They see a small tiger who he's helped train and raise up and the tiger kills him. And people seem to be shocked by that. Friends, a tiger's going to grow up, and you're not going to change the desires of a tiger, right? A lion's going to grow up, you're not going to change the desires of a lion, right? And what he's saying here is your desire starts small in your life, but if you feed it, it will grow. And when it grows, it will take over in your life. A sure way to lose your life is to say, I can control myself. I can, I can do whatever I want to do. I can play with sin and not be affected by it. Look at how he says how ridiculous this is. Look at verse 27 and 28. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? The answer is a no. That's a silly question to even ask. Absolutely not. That's what he says next. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No, absolutely not. But this sin is deceptive. Sexual sin is deceptive. Now, you think it would be obvious, but it's deceptive not just because it makes you think, oh, I can play with it. It's not that big of a deal, but it also makes you give yourself lies. Lies that he talks about in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 21 through 23. Proverbs 5, 21 and 23. He tells his son, Son, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. You know, it's interesting that so often we can convince ourselves whenever we sin in the dark where nobody knows that nobody knows about it. And we somehow think that private sin doesn't affect people. Listen, your sin may be private, but it's never personal. Hear that again. Your sin may be done in private, but it's never personal. Your sin affects those who are around you, always. And what Psalm is trying to say here is, look, whether you think people know or think people are going to find out or not, God knows. He knows every thought in your head, every action you've done. He knows everything. Hebrews 4.13 can't be any more clear. One day you'll stand before God and it says, Everybody will stand naked and exposed to give an account to the eyes of God. And nothing will hide you from your sin. Anything that's been done in the dark will be exposed. But sin somehow makes this way of you thinking, you know what? I can get away with it or nobody's going to see it. I want you to see what he says next. Verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Notice what it says there again. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. They hold him fast. Friends, another way that sexual sin is deceitful is it makes you think, I can stop whenever I want to. That's just not true. That's just not true. And he wants his son to recognize what you feed will eventually happen. What you put in your mind will eventually 
come out in your life. I'll never forget whenever I was in high school. I was in keyboarding class. And there was a poster that was right beside my computer. And I'd see it every single day. And I remember reading it and its message has stuck with me. I remember saying something to my teacher about it numerous times. She eventually gave me the poster at the end of the year. But the poster simply said this. It said, watch your thoughts because your thoughts will become your words. Watch your words because your words will become your actions. Watch your actions because your actions will become your habits. Watch your habits because your habits will become your character. Watch your character because it will become your destiny. And it all begins with not guarding your thoughts. Friends, what Solomon is trying to say is, son, your desires matter. If you do not kill desire for sexual sin, for things that are outside of God's bounds for you, it will overtake you. And do not be shocked whenever it does. There is a mountain, a pile of bodies who've had their lives ruined because of sexual sin. He says, watch yourself. Keep watch over yourself. Sexual sin is so deceptive. Then he gets to the third point. Look at verse 27 through 33. He says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Look at the third truth he's trying to tell his son. One, sexual sin is disappointing. Two, sexual sin is deceptive. And three, sexual sin is destructive. It's destructive. Verse 25, he says, no one will go unpunished. Your sin will find you out. You'll pay for it, and it's never worth the cost. I would tell you what my mom told me as a kid. Sin will take you further than you ever thought you would go. It'll keep you there a lot longer than you ever thought you'd stay, and it'll make you pay for a whole lot more than you ever wanted to pay. How much does it cost? He says it destroys oneself. Look at chapter 5, verse 7 through 14. He he lays it out a little bit more clearly. How does it destroy someone? Chapter 5, 7 through 14, he says, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Unless what happens? Lest you give your honors to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. Do you hear what he said? How does it destroy someone? You lose your honor, your dignity, your reputation. If you lose your name, friends, what do you have? Who cares how much money you have? Who cares what neighborhood you live in? Who cares what you've got? Who cares what your job is? You lose your name, your reputation. What do you have? You're at the mercy of other people. He says people will gossip. They will slander about you. But if you give them a reason to talk, why be shocked whenever they start talking? He says there are monetary costs that could happen. There are social costs that will happen. He said the worst part of all of it is you will live with regret. Oh, how I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. How I didn't incline my ear to this. I'm not going to ask you to, but if I were to ask everybody in this room, raise your hand if sexual sin has affected someone you know. Everybody in this room would raise their hand. 
If I were to say, has sexual sin from someone affected you? I don't know if there's anybody in this room that maybe would not raise their hand. How has sexual sin affected you personally? I don't know many people that maybe would not raise their hand. Friends, do you hear what he's saying? The cost of sin, it's pervasive. It's scattered all over the place. And it affects and ruins whatever it touches. Now you'll have the one person that say, Merrick, wait a minute, isn't all sin the same? Y'all, that's a lie. That is a lie. Google it later. All sin is the same. You won't find a verse. That's something that we have made up to make ourselves feel better about the sins in our lives. To say that all sin is the same is the same, is the same as saying breaking the law is the same, whether I have a speeding ticket or I murder someone. Well, yes and no. It's the same in that you broke the law, but that's where the relation stops, right? One is much further in degree and consequence. Friends, in the Bible, it's, it's clear. All, say, all sin is the same in a sense that it's an affront against God, yes, but it's not the same in degree or consequence. It's not the same in what it does to you. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, one of the best chapters in talking about sexual immorality and how to flee from it. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul says it this way, flee from sexual immorality. Why? You see, every other sin a person commits is outside of their body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, it's further reaching than a lie that you tell. It cuts differently. Now think about it. Sex has tremendous power. That's the way God designed it. But if you take it outside of its context, you give somebody dynamite and a stick of something to light it with and just put them in a room and say, figure it out, that's not going to help anybody, right? Heavy power in an area where it's not supposed to be brings destruction. And this is the whole point of what Solomon is trying to tell his son. Now I would ask you, why is Solomon going into detail? Why is he sharing all of this? Well, y'all, if you don't know about Solomon, Solomon was quite the playboy to say the least. You might even ask, how in the world could Solomon even talk about this? Well, Solomon can talk about it because it ruined his life. Solomon can talk about it because it says that foreign women, many women that he went after, pulled his heart away from God, and he ran after them. And because of that, God said, after you die, the kingdom's going to be split. What are the effects, what are the consequences of your sin? It means the kingdom of God literally is going to be split into multiple tribes, and eventually they're going to go into exile because you didn't heed my words. You didn't follow me. You didn't have a heart for me like your dad David did. I think Solomon's sharing with him because Solomon knows firsthand the consequences of sin. But I think another reason is he's sharing this with him because he sees the exact opposite going on in the world around him, which is why I think he gives us the story in chapter 7. Look at Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. Know how he weds together a lot of what he's been talking about in one story, essentially, that he makes up in Proverbs chapter 7. Beginning in verse 6, he says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice. I've seen among the simple, meaning the foolish, I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. Verse 8, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight of the evening at the time of night and darkness. In other words, he says, I see a young guy who's making very unwise choices. He's going somewhere at a bad time of the day, close to the adulteress's house. He's playing with sin. Someone says, this is what I see. I see a young man, a foolish man who's just playing with sin, playing in an area where he can fall into sin. Look at verse 10 and following. He says, and behold, like it's no shock, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. 
Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner, she lies in wait. In other words, he's saying the adulterous woman, figuratively, she's everywhere. She's looking for the next person that's going to fall into sin with her. Or the man, the sexually moral man, is looking for the next woman to fall into sin with him. And what's crazy is, is he doesn't live in our world today. You know, he's not saying, you know, this person is sitting in their room by themselves at night. No, no, sin finds us there now in a way that it never did then, right? Sexual sin is more pervasive than it's ever been. The opportunity is more pervasive than it's ever been. And yet he's warning about this. I see an unwise person not guarding themselves and someone who's looking to make them fall is there. Look at verse 13 and following. It says, she seizes him and kisses him and with bold face, she has the nerve to say this. Verse 14. I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you and to seek eagerly, and I have found you. Notice the wayward woman is a religious woman. I had to offer sacrifice today. What's she talking about? She went to the temple, offered sacrifices today, so I'm good now. Today I've paid my vows. In other words, I've done my due at church. Now I can go do what I want to. I've been looking for you. Look at how he talks to her. Verse 16, I've spread my couch with coverings colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. In other words, sensual pleasure is all here. Just come to me. Verse 18, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband's not home. You don't have to worry about him. He's got on a long journey. We don't have to worry about being caught. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon is when he will come home. And look, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him with flattery. You're the one that I've been looking for. With the promise, come to me, you'll find all your sexual desires met. There's no consequences here. She persuades him, she compels him, which ultimately leads Solomon to get to the conclusion. Verse 22 through 27. He says, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. He's saying you look behind her and you find just piles of bodies of lives who've been ruined by this. Which leads to the first, fourth truth he wants to give about sexual sin. One, it's disappointing. Two, it's deceptive. Three, it's destructive. And fourth, it is deadly. It is deadly. He says, as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is trapped, as a bird is caught in a snare. That's what sexual sin is like. Don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying all of this began with a desire unchecked, with an unguarded heart. I see a foolish person going in areas, being in areas, playing with sin. And this is where they ended up. Solomon is saying this, the road to death is paved with unguarded desire. Remember, sexual sin is choosing to please myself in ways that God does not tell me to sexually. Fulfilling my desires my way Versus his way, his way. And the sad truth is it is our own desires that lead us down the path to our very own ruin. I heard a story several years ago. I don't even remember where I got it. I just remember I heard it once and I've never forgotten it. And it's simply talking about this idea of desire and really the, the ruin of someone's life. And the story's a bit strange, but it, it fits the point. 
The story essentially goes this way. There are Eskimos in northern Canada still. And the way that these people live, they live out in igloos, right? They live out away from society, away from civilization. They don't have guns. They, they have to still find food to be able to kill. They have to guard themselves for predators. Well, one of the biggest issues they have is wolves. Wolves will eat their food. Wolves will also attack them and kill them. And so they had to figure out a way to kill wolves. And so what they learned to do is whenever they would kill an animal, what they would do is they would take several bowls and they would place the bowls out. They would take blood from the animal they killed and they would place blood in each of the bowls. After they placed blood in each of the bowls, they would take a single razor, a single blade, and they would drop it in the bowl. So they'd leave it out and it would freeze. And whenever it froze, it would end up being a block of blood with a blade in it. And what they would do is they would take these and they would throw them out all around the wilderness, all around the forest, all around where they live, and see what happens is a wolf smells blood, right? They desire blood. If they smell blood, they're coming. And so they go after it and they begin to lick the ball of blood. And as they begin licking it, eventually they get to the blade and they cut their tongue. But something interesting about wolves is they don't stop at that point because of two reasons. One, all they taste is blood and that's what they desire so they keep partaking of it. And then two, even whenever the own blood they're tasting is the own blood in their mouth, they don't stop until eventually they bleed out and die. Now maybe it numbs their tongue because it's a block of ice, I don't know, but all I know is they keep going and the very desire to get what they want eventually kills them. Friends, heed the warning. This is exactly what Solomon is saying. He's saying if you take your desire and you try and fulfill yourself in this aspect of your life, your own way, you eventually may even cut your tongue and you won't even realize it. You continue in your desires. You won't even realize it. Maybe you've become numb to the effects that are around you. You won't even realize it. And before you know it, it will cost you your life. Friends, hear me. God has a desire and plan for us sexually. And if he does, don't you think the devil does? If the devil's plan is to steal, kill, and destroy, there's nothing that does that more than sexual sin. And this is what Solomon wants to tell his son. Son, be on your guard. So what is our defense? If this is the truth and this is all around us and all of us have levels of sexual brokenness, what do we need to do? How do we need to respond? Well, our defense is simply this. We need God's wisdom on this subject. And we need it more than you and I could ever even imagine. We need God's wisdom on this subject. And I'll just show you three ways that Solomon tells us this. The first way is this. We need God's wisdom by this. We need to trust in God's way. Trust God's way. Trust that he knows best. In other words, trust God's design for sex and trust God's desire for sex. Trust in God's way. Look at chapter 5, verse 15 through 17. I want you to see how he says just this. We need to trust God's design for sex. He's designed it a certain way for a reason. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 and following. He says, son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. He says, drink water from your own well, your own cistern. Notice that's one, one well, one cistern, versus drinking water that's been sprawled out in the streets. Yeah, I don't know a single water bottle company or anybody who would buy water that on the side of it says fresh swamp water. Fresh water from the streets. I don't know anybody that would sell their water bottle that way. But they typically say what? Fresh spring water. Purified water. 
The whole point that Solomon's trying to make here, he's saying you have to understand God's design for sex between one man, one woman, for life in the context of marriage. And if you want to keep your sex life pure and free from contamination, you must keep it there. That is God's design for marriage. That's not just his design, but notice he has a grand desire. It's not because he doesn't want you to enjoy sex or have a great sex life. It's the exact opposite. Look at verse 18 through 20. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. And don't miss this last part. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So here you see something interesting. God's desire for sex within marriage is be intoxicated with it. I think it's interesting. He says sex outside of marriage is like going to the street and trying to get water from the street. God's desire for sex in marriage is like water that slowly becomes fine wine. It's intoxicating. It's interesting. Jesus' first miracles at a wedding, what does he do? He turns water into wine. Now, I'm not saying that he's directing it towards this or has anything to do with this, but I'm saying the metaphor water to intoxicating wine is used here and in Song of Solomon as the idea of love within the confines of marriage. Be intoxicated with the wife of your youth. God's desire is for you to have that, for you to have it the way he created it, that you might be most fulfilled. Marriage is the avenue where sex reaches its fulfillment. In other words, as Danny Aiken says, the antidote to sexual sin is to be sexually satisfied in your marriage. Don't neglect it. Don't run to cheap substitutes. Switch from that. This isn't the purpose of the sermon, but I'll briefly say this. If that's the case, then why aren't more married couples satisfied in their sex life? I'll tell you a few reasons. One, you don't realize the devil's plan. I had a friend tell me this a long time ago, and it stuck with me. Every single couple I do premarital counseling with, I tell them, the devil's desire for you before you get married is sleep together. He'll do anything he can to get you to sleep together, and it's odd. After you get married, he'll do whatever he can to keep you from it. The devil's desire is to make you sleep together before marriage, but then after marriage, he doesn't want you to have it. He wants you to fight over it, to bicker over it, to have issues with it. So you have to understand, the devil is at work in sex life in marriage. But secondly, both of you must understand the importance and design of sex within marriage. Friends, intimacy does not happen beginning in the bedroom. There are too many husbands who want their wives to be a sexual partner you go to for that and no intimacy outside. Friends, that's not the way they're wired. That's not the way you're wired. If you want to show your wife you love her, it doesn't happen first in the bedroom. It happens first washing dishes. Happens first saying, how was your day? It happens first saying, I care about you as a person, not my personal sex object. And women, vice versa, on the other side, I've heard too many people say, well, my wife's just fine if we never have sex. You need to understand the dangers of that, ladies. The dangers of that. Paul, on 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about the dangers of sexual immorality. You know what the cure is? 1 Corinthians 7, right after it, he says, give yourself to one another and continually do so. Love one another. Give yourself to one another. It is your job, each other as your spouse, to be intimate with one another even in this context. And you must fight for your sex life. I'll put it this way. Water does not turn into wine overnight, does it? You have to fight for it. Good sex in a marriage takes time. It takes going through life together. 
One of our biggest problems is we have people, and I'm seeing a lot of younger couples that I do counseling with or that I talk with, specifically whenever I was in Ruston. I remember numerous people I would talk to about this, couples that were either about to get married or literally right after they got married. They would talk about how they were struggling in their sexual lives. I said, the reason you're struggling in your sex life is because pornography's been your educator. And what you don't want is a wife to be intimate with. You want a woman or an object for your own pleasure. That's not what sex that's out of marriage is. You want to get married and just think sex is going to be great all of a sudden. Friends, you've got your whole life to figure it out. And sex only gets better with time. That's the point of this. It is like wine. Be intoxicated with it. But you must work for it, prioritize it, seek unity in it inside and outside of the bedroom. Done right, it only gets better. And I would tell you, look at any survey or study you want to, and it'll prove that. I'll just tell you of one. Danny Aiken, who's the president at Southeastern Seminary, he writes a book titled God on Sex. I would encourage any of you, get it and read it. But he shows how a survey in there across the United States of America asked questions regarding sex. And this is where their findings. Sexually active single people have the most sexual problems and the least pleasure out of sex. Incredibly dissatisfied. Married couples by far across the board reported the highest and happiest satisfaction in their sex lives. But get this, the part that I wouldn't have expected. The most sexually satisfied demographic group is that of married couples between the ages of 50 and 59 years of age. In other words, the couples that get married, they educate themselves together in the confines of their marriage. They're intimate with each other and they stay together. You find, you figure it out. And as you walk through life together, you figure it out. You love one another together in those confines. It means in the high moments, you're with that person. In the low moments, you're with that person. Through sickness, through health, through whatever it might be, you fight for your marriage. And what does it do? It creates a bond that nothing physical by itself can touch. Maybe, just maybe, God has a design, and his design is right, and his design actually proves itself to be right to those who practice it and do it. Do you trust God's way? Secondly, Solomon says, trust in God's word. Trust in God's wisdom. Each speech you see throughout, he is beckoning his son. Keep my word. Listen to my word. Pay attention to my word. Hold it near and it will save you. I'll give you just one example. Proverbs chapter 7. Look at verses 1 through 5 before he begins the parable of the foolish boy. He says, my son... Chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, meaning keep her close. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. In other words, he says, son, you have one defense, and that is the word of God. You have one defense against the sexual onslaught of the world around you and the rogue desires that are within you, and it is the word of God. You have it or you have nothing. Back to Proverbs 4.23, says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Remember, we talked about this last week. How he tells you to have security posted around your heart. Make sure you know what's coming in. Make sure you know what's going out. But I want to ask this question as we talk about God's word. What does God's word say about sexual sin? What does he say is best for you? Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. He tells us how guarded should you actually be in this subject. He says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, meaning coveting someone else for your own pleasure, 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The NIV actually hits the nail on the head whenever they say sexual morality, all impurity and covetous, you must not even have a hint of it in your life. In other words, don't have any of it in your life. Friends, it's amazing how often we think we can choose how much of something we can, we can have in our lives. And what the Bible is telling us is any pollution in the well, in the wellspring of your sex life, any pollution is damaging, and it leads to ruin. And I would tell you, your standard needs to be this. I don't want to have a hint of it in my life, not even a bit of it. Think of it like this. If you were to come to my house, and I were to have this massive gallon jug of purified water on my island, and I would say, hey, here's water for you to drink as you come in, but I want you to know my kids drank some of it, and I felt bad that it wasn't full, so I just topped it off with a little bit of toilet water. My guess is you wouldn't say, that's no big deal. Put the cup under there and start drinking. My guess is you wouldn't also say, well, how much toilet water did you actually put in there, right? Like, you wouldn't care. The fact is, if a drop of toilet water gets in my water, I'm not drinking it, right? This is the context. Not even a hint of sexual immorality in your life. Not even a hint of feeding the desire your way versus God way in your life. In other words, to keep your heart with all vigilance in this area, friends, you have got to fight. Am I not wrong? You have got to fight in this world. You have got to fight like the small boy in the parable above. Sexual sin will come after you if you are not guarded. In other words, hear me. What you watch matters. What you listen to matters. How you interact with people matters. If you watch TV that glorifies sex, don't be shocked whenever that gets into your mind. Don't be shocked whenever it comes out into your life. If you watch TV shows and you say, well, the worst part of this is really just has a lot of sexual innuendo or a lot of sexual jokes. So you're telling me it's okay to laugh at what God despises? Friends, we're all too often like the wolf who's been licking the law of sexual morality long enough. We've become numb to the truth of the sexual morality we probably have in our own lives. And the Bible says if you're a Christian, don't have a hint of it. Get rid of it. Don't mess with it. Don't play with it. With social media now, you have got to guard yourself. You maybe don't know this, but social media in young girls is the number one thing that leads them to watch pornography. Pornography is not a guy issue. It's a guy and a girl issue, and it's increasingly becoming that in a very even way. You've got to guard what you have on social media. You've got to guard what's on your phone, what's on your computer. I don't think I have to argue with anybody that pornography is wrecking havoc in marriages. It's wrecking havoc in our country. It's wrecking havoc in our world. You have to guard yourself from it. Young, old, married, single, whatever it may be. It is decimating the world and it has the opportunity, power to ruin your life if you do not kill it. I can remember calling a mentor of mine whenever I was just struggling through some guys that I've been walking with. And I was in Ruston, I had four guys who I loved and poured into and all of them are struggling with the same issue. And I can just remember saying, I get tired of talking to people and hearing over and over and over again. I mean, I look at pornography other than that, I'm, I'm fine. I'm like, do you not realize what that means? I get tired of feeling like we're fighting an uphill battle and we cannot win. And I can remember saying, I'm like, it's a war that I feel like I'm losing and we cannot win. And he said, Merrick, it's not that it's a war we can't win. It's just not a fair fight. And I'll never forget it. He says, you got to fight like heck for those guys. you got to fight like heck for your own self. you got to fight like heck for your own marriage. Friends, if you're dating someone, you better guard yourself. 
If the person you're dating isn't fighting for your sexual purity now before you get married, what, think, what makes you think they're going to fight for sexual purity after they get married? We need to guard ourselves top down. Parents, I want to challenge you for a second. I get so tired whenever I was doing college ministry, so frustrated at every single kid I talked to was given a cell phone at the age of 10 and had full access to whatever they wanted to. I heard J.D. Greer talk so seriously about this. He said, I tell my kids, if your phone is unguarded, that is borderline child abuse. Friends, hear me. We cannot be naive to the fact that if you give someone a phone, they don't even have to go looking for it. But once it finds them, and it will eventually, no doubt, don't be shocked whenever it does. If you give your child a phone that has all access whatsoever, are you kidding me? Do you not remember whenever you were a teenager? I was first exposed to porn whenever I was either 11 or 12, and it was at a cousin's house on their computer, and it was accidental. But one look got me. One look. That's all it took for me. And I had to go to my house, and I remember sneaking around my parents using dial-up wireless or dial-up internet to do my best to feed my lust. And you're telling me a kid has it at their hands, whatever they want, whenever they want it? Friends, I'll put it this way. If you don't protect your kids, you will lead to the ruin in their life. Do not be shocked down the road whenever their marriage goes crazy. Do not be shocked whenever they get off to college and the desires they've been feeding in their heart for years now come out. As parents, it is your job to shepherd your kids. As parents, it's your job to model for them. Friends, you are not above following. If you're watching TV that glorifies sexual acts and your kid is right there, what are you saying to them? Friends, hear me. Sexual sin ruined my parents' marriage. They've gotten back together, and by God's grace, there's been restitution. But the pain is there. Sexual sin ruined the first 22 years of my life because I wasn't guarded. I didn't have a help in it. Hear me. If your kids don't feel like they can go to you, who are they going to go to? Do you really want them to go to Google to learn how to have sex? Look at what Solomon is doing. He's taking his son. He's saying, let's go for a walk. And he's saying, here's the dangers. I've been there. I know you don't want to go that route. Friends, you cannot be afraid to talk to your kids about sex. You cannot be afraid to guard them. Who cares if they're mad about it? And if you don't understand the pervasive effect of social media, specifically on teenage girls today, you're not paying attention. Gene Twinge wrote the book, iGen, talks about how social media for young girls has a worse effect than pornography did on boys in the 90s and 2000s. That is a bold statement to make, but then she proves it. Friends, you need to understand, it is your job to raise your kids, to train your kids, to teach your kids, to protect your kids, and the fight is not fair. It's not fair. If you don't fight for them, who will? If you don't guard them, who will? So the last thing I'll say is this. Well, what if I've messed up? What if I've blown it? Then you're in a category with me. I understand. And I would tell you the last thing that Solomon wants to say is this. Trust in God's washing. Trust in God's washing. (laughs) 
Friends, you maybe don't know this, but the devil's goal is not just to get you to sin. The devil's goal is to get you to fall into sin and then to beat you down over and over and over again saying, can you believe you did that? Can you believe you did that? Can you believe someone like you would fall into that? Can you believe you did that? The, the, the devil's goal is to keep you in the dark because as long as sin is in the dark, it's ugliest. As long as sin is in the dark, it has power over you. As long as sin is in the dark, it can lie to you. As long as your sin is in the dark, you can believe, I'm chained by this. I can't find freedom in this. And then you have Jesus who says, yes, sexual sin leads to ruin and it leads to death. And that's why I died for you. There is nothing you have done in your life that is outside of the bounds between his outstretched arms on the cross. There is nothing you have done in your life that Jesus didn't say, I know, I know, I know you were going to do it, but I love you anyway. Friends, do you realize the grace of Jesus? He says, if you're in me, you're not defined by what you did last night. You're not defined by what you did last year. You're not defined by your latest sin. You're defined by what I say, and I say you are righteous, you are holy, if you have repented and placed your faith in me. I get to tell you who you are. Jesus paid for our sexual sins, and he can also purify us from our sexual sins. Y'all, a passage I held to a lot early on in my walk with Christ because of my sexual sin and brokenness was 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul simply writes it this way. He said, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or male prostitutes or people who practice homosexuality or people who are thieves or greedy or drunkards or abusive or cheaters, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But don't miss verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, what is he saying? Redemption can happen in Christ. Redemption does happen in Christ. I'm a product of it, y'all. I can't tell you how much of my life I dealt with guilt. Even after coming to faith in Christ, I dealt with guilt of the women that I'd abused in my path, of the people I'd led astray in my path, of the lies I'd told in my past. And it took me about a year to work through the fact that God does not hold that over you anymore. That sin doesn't have power over you anymore. Let the, shackles, let the shackles go because I've broken you free from it. Friends, one thing I love, you look at people in the Bible, like think of David. In 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see how David falls into adultery with Bathsheba. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, kills her husband, just heinous evil. I want to ask you, how do you know that that happened? Who do you think told? Who knew they were up top, walking around, and saw Bathsheba? Who knew the events that transpired? David. So why in the world would David allow it to be written? Why would David choose to allow it to be written? His most grievous sins are put on full display for us to see? Why would he do that? Because he came to Jesus, he repented, and he said, my soul has been made clean. He said, I was guilty, I was red like crimson, but I've been washed. Therefore, I can boast in the past. I can say, I'm not that person anymore. Friends, hear me. Even if you know Christ, you may fall. The question isn't, will you fall or will you not? The question is, is will you fight after you do? The question posed here isn't, can Christ purify you? That's not the question. 
The question is, are you ruled by your passions and desires, or do you seek to be ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, as he says to the lame man, do you desire to be healed? If you do, he says, come to me. When you fall, get back up, come to me. When you fall, bring the sin to me. I can purify you. But the issue for some people is they don't want to stop. They want to have Jesus while holding on to their sin. They don't want to fight against it. Friends, that is evidence of an unchanged heart, period. If you have sin in your life, you know is heinous and against God's word, and you are actively saying, you know what? No. Friends, what is the heart of a believer? My way over his way. And for some of you this morning, maybe your response needs to be, you need to get right with the Lord and recognize you've been serving the, on the altar of self and your own sexual lives or whatever it might be, and you need to repent and surrender your life to Christ. You cannot embrace sin while following Christ. You see, whenever you place your faith in Christ, the Bible says his spirit will come and live inside of you. He'll give you the word, and you have the word now that you can fight. Listen to this. The word of God is your weapon. The people of God are your army. If you isolate yourself and seek to fight alone, you will lose. Period. You will lose. In other words, that means you need to find people who you know and love and trust and say, you need to ask me whatever question you feel like I need to be asked. Better yet, you need to say, look, this is where I struggle. Put this code on my phone. Install some software on my phone. Hold me accountable for how I have relations with people of the opposite sex in my life. Hold me accountable for where my eyes are, where my ears are, where my heart is. Know what I'm watching. Know what I'm a part of. Friends, without accountability, you will fall. You see, many are losing this battle because they're feeding the flesh more than they're feeding the spirit. If you're in the middle of a war, you don't tell your neighbor, hey, try not to get hit too much. You say, don't get shot. Friends, you need to treat the same mentality in your walk in this regard in your life. Don't take any enemy fire. No cost is too high to run from sexual sin in your life. I heard a guy tell me this recently. He said, sexual sin will ruin your life. In other words, you need to think of it like cancer. If I got cancer today, I know my family would stop at nothing to help me go and fight it and win. No cost will be too great. Friends, it's the same in this regard. If you do not see that this is the path to ruin, you will ruin your life. No cost is too high to fight. In summary, if you are not wise to follow God's plan for your sexuality, it will ruin your life. The question is, is will you trust him? Will you trust him in the plan that he has for sex? Will you trust his way and do whatever it takes to kill sin in your life and will you trust him that even when you fall, he can cleanse you. He can pick you back up and set you free from your bondage of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. God, we praise you for this simple fact that there's not a soul in this room that does not have sexual brokenness in their past or in their life. We all are born with this mentality of filling our own desires, our own way. And God, you knew this, which is why you sent Jesus. God, help us realize the glory of Christ. Help us realize the glory of the cross. That we deserve sin for what we have done, and yet you put our sin on Jesus' back. 
You took your wrath for sin out on your own son in our place that we might be forgiven, that we might be changed, that we might have life and have life abundantly. God, apart from you, we have no shot. We have no chance. And God, we thank you for what you've done for us in our lives. God, I pray with your spirit, convict us where we need to be convicted. Help us look inward, Lord, right now. Yes, we're accountable for the things we've done in the past, but you can't change what you've done in the past. You can change what you've done here or what you're going to do from here on out. But help us see that right now we need to make decisions. Right now we need to have repentance for many of us. Right now we need to set up guardrails. Right now we need to make the commitment to fight and recognize we are accountable for what we do whenever we leave. Father, help us respond to you. Help us know how to respond to you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have three simple prompts I'll take you through as we're concluding. One, it's this. Maybe this morning you realize that you don't have a relationship with Christ. You realize that your life has not been predicated based on trust in Him. It's trust in yourself, your way. But I ask you, will you repent and turn from your sin? No, repentance means change your mind. It's to have a change in mind about me and my sin. The Bible says if you just come to Jesus and repent and place your faith in him, he will save you. Will you do that this morning? If so, all you need to do is cry out to him. God, I want to give my life to you. For others of you this morning, you know Christ, but you recognize there is aspects in your life here where you need to repent of. I would tell you this morning, will you do that? Some of you are playing with sin right now, and you maybe don't even realize it. Maybe you've grown numb to it. Will you recognize the devastating effect of sexual sin? And will you repent, and will you turn from it this morning? The second prompt I would give you is for some of you this morning, the best thing that could happen to you is you need to expose the sin that you've kept in the dark. I'll never forget, I had somebody tell me one time, Merrick, you need to go to a wiser man, an older man, Go to someone that would be incredibly embarrassing and you need to bear your heart out to them. And I've done that. It was shameful in all of the right ways. But it let me be mended. It let me have someone beside me to say, I'm going to fight with you. And that person has stuck with me for a decade. I will fight with you. For some of you, maybe it's your spouse you need to come clean to. As long as sin's in the dark, it will stay ugly. It will have power over you. For some of you, you need to go to a friend and say, man, look, I need help in this area. I need you to hold me accountable. For some of you this morning, you need to expose the sin that you've kept too long in the dark. The last prompt I would give you this morning is for all of us. We need to set up guardrails to pursue holiness in our lives. There should be guardrails over what you watch. Don't just let anything come through your eyes. There should be guardrails over what you listen to. There should be guardrails over what you have on your phone. I'm a grown man. I have guards on my phone because I don't trust myself. You need to guard your eyes and your ears and your heart. You need to fight for purity. Are you doing that? Parents, I would ask you, maybe today the biggest thing you need to do is you need to go home and make a plan for your family. Emily and I have talked about this. What is our plan as a family to guard our family? That includes me and Emily and all of our kids. All of us are under the same banner. 
Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to come to the altar this morning and just pray. Cry out to the Lord. Maybe you want to come and talk to me or talk to Braden. I don't know what you need to do this morning. But I would tell you, respond however the Lord feels, however you feel led to do so.